Welcome to the Church Times podcast. Try 10 issues for £10 or two months access to our website and apps also for £10. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash new hyphen reader. Hello, this is Sarah Merrick with the Church Times Books podcast. And I'm in conversation today with Rachel Mann, and we're going to be talking about the book we've chosen as this month's book club title. And the book is Crossroads by Jonathan Franson. And for anyone who doesn't know, he's an American writer known for his sprawling satirical dramas. And his breakthrough book was The Corrections, which came out in 2001. um, And that won a number of awards, um, including a Pulitzer And others of his best-selling titles are Freedom, which came out in 2010, and Purity, which was 2015. And the book we're discussing, Crossroads, has been billed as the first part of a trilogy called A Key to All Mythologies, which harks back to um, George Eliot, Middlemarch, and the great book that Casabon is writing. So, Rachel, could you start, please, just by telling us a little bit about Crossroads? What is what is the story? That's a huge question about a huge book. But but broadly speaking, tell us something about the story. I mean, essentially, it's a very simple story. It's it's a family drama. It's um, a drama that takes place around Christmas 1971 and um, reaches back in time to the 1930s of America and stretches forward to Easter 1974. And at the heart of this drama, Sarah, is a family, the Hildebrands. I I never know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, the Hildebrands, but that's that's how I would pronounce it. Uh, They are a vicarage family, admittedly of an American sort. And essentially it is an insight into the inner lives and the public dramas of this suburban Chicagoan family in the run-up to Christmas 1971. And that makes it sound very soapy, Sarah, that it's essentially what's going on in this uh, family dynamic. What we discover is that this ostensibly happy family with Russ, an associate pastor, at church in the suburbs of Chicago, and uh, his 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 clever wife Marion and their four children, we we discover that this almost idealized suburban family life is not quite what it seems. That this is a family in breakdown and decay, full of family tension. And mistrust, and I'll say a bit more about that later, but also of anxiety about the, each individual's place in this changing American society. Uh, I guess the 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 initial driver is uh, Ross's sense of of failure and his sense of displacement from. The, the youth group, the crossroads of the title. Ross is someone who'd been pretty hip and trendy in the 60s, one of these uh, pastors who'd got very involved in social justice and social action. He and his family moved to this uh, church in the suburbs, and there's a new leader on the block, Rick Ambrose, who's this uh, young guy who effectively pushes Ross out 
of uh, his central position in the youth group. And that becomes a catalyst for Ross's deep questions mm-hmm. about his faith, his identity, and his marriage. But all of the characters are misplaced in a sense. They have this sense of not quite fitting in, or they discover that they don't quite fit into this perfect uh, image of America that had emerged from the 1950s onwards. So quick question, would you say it's comedy or tragedy? <laughs> well, um, I mean, it has elements of both. I mean, in the in terms of the the classical sense of of comedy, um, we'll have to wait and see. I think because it's a tri- it's a trilogy, and in a sense, it's about all of life, and it's also about one one particular family's lives as well. I think what it's about. I think it's a study in a, a reckoning with failure. Actually, I think that this is about what what happens when people who um, have hopes, promises and dreams in their lives and sometimes quite serious moral certainties actually face the realities of a, of a so of, of social conditions that are both seemingly full of promise you know this is set in the early 70s this is in the wake of the the 60s hippie revolution that's full of all of those promises that sort of culture the countercultural revolution but then also discovering that not only is the established culture of the United States and the established family culture of the United States, it has limits and limitations, but the counterculture itself is perhaps not quite all that it seems. Mm-hmm. And maybe it, 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 and so maybe it is in the short term, a kind of tragedy because the tragedy, insofar as it is a tragedy, it's generated out of illusions about self and society and discovering that those illusions only take you so far. I think um, Church Times readers will recognise particularly this, the kind of particular tragedy about being this this promising young man, particularly this young pastor who's going to sort of, you know, who can do, can do no wrong in his early um, days and years in the ministry. And then actually you know, huge disappointment follows. And I'm sure we've all met people who've had this experience of being the bright young thing. And actually, you know, life gets in the way. Um, I felt that was that was particularly poignant. But I don't know, I wonder, is that it was there something unique about something different about it being in a church context? Or am I just reading that in because it's a context I'm familiar with? That sense of disappointment. I mean, I, I'm not sure it is u- uniquely a factor in in church life. However, it, I think it's amplified, Sarah, because there is this sense of the church as um, seeking to invite people into uh, the kingdom of God, um, offering a foretaste of the of the promise. And as such, I mean, those people who are charged with leadership in such an institution will always be tempted to a kind, maybe almost a messiah complex, but also have a a, a right and appropriate sense of here I am, I have been called, I've been drawn by God. And if we are faithful and obedient, and if only we serve, then 
God's blessing will be poured out. And, and yet what we discover here is a, it's an exposure really. It's an exposure of all sorts of self myths, I think. Mm. And I mean, with, with Ross in particular, I, I don't mind admitting Sarah, that there are aspects of him that I do not find particularly attractive. I think he's actually a bit creepy in all sorts of ways. And yet, <laughs> and yet I think as we see the novel unfold and we, we get a better grip on his backstory and his formation and the kind of world in which he grew, grew up, we can also see how there's a sadness that that promise has not been been realised, really. Yeah, yes. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the church itself. So it, one of the themes that's implicit in the title Crossroads is the it's the name of the movement within the church and also the kind of time that the, um, the book is set. I'd like to come back to the sort of 1970s bit in a minute. But if we talk about the religious movement at the centre... Would you describe it, this sort of youth group, would you describe it as a cult or is it just a sort of trendy way of exploring faith at a particular era in time? Gosh, what a question, uh, Sarah, because I have to say that one of the plot drivers or dramatic drivers of the novel, one of the things that kept me page turning is I'm thinking, oh, this is just going to implode. And there's this sort of sense of cultic horror unfolding centered around Rick Ambrose and the I mean I can only describe it as creepy levels of self-disclosure and and intimacy now I think once it's set in the arc of the completed novel I'm more inclined to say that it is an expression of the trendy rather self-indulgent self-centered, self-expressive counterculture of the time. However, and we may need to be appropriately circumspect here, given unfolding stuff happening Mm. in the Church of England at the moment, but I don't mind saying that with some of the stuff that is currently being disclosed amongst certain youth movements in the Church of England, shall we say, I think, oh my goodness, this has all the marks of mm, mm, mm. cultic grooming, really. Yeah, yeah, it's uncomfortable reading, while also it sort of sounds awful to say it's very entertaining. It's very gripping, but it is unco- there are very uncomfortable parts of it, aren't there? Particularly for anyone who's involved in in church life, I think. Absolutely. So would you say this was a book about faith? Um, You say at the end of your piece, um, your introduction piece, that it sounds as if the way the discussion of faith could sound preachy, but you don't think it is. And I quite agree with you there. But is it a book about faith or is it? uh, How would you how would you answer that question? I I think it's about one horizon of faith. I mean, I, I, I do think that Franson writes impressively about any number of things, including around church culture. But I think that what he lasers in on is a kind of re- a, a religious mood that is that is part of not just faith cultures, but also can be an aspect of non-faith cultures. And there's a sort of kind of, it's the surety. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, a sense of, of, 
personal destiny mm. as well. And it, I think there's something very American about that. I mean, that whole thing about uh, the, you know, the, the the cultural movement of the 19th century in America called Manifest Destiny and this sort of sense of these are people who, despite their critique of the dominant culture of the uh, the post-war of post-war America, even if they're countercultural people, they have this surety of a particular kind of faith. Mm. That means that it brooks no opposition, that there is no nuance, there's no flex, there's no subtlety, actually. And I think that that's that 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 is a that is always going to produce crises. It's always going to produce mm-hmm. disasters. And I think it's it is something that all of us, particularly those of us who are people of faith, should be alert to, but and and also should not dismiss because I mean I sit here, Sarah, as someone who, I guess, is one of those um, readily mocked Anglicans who rather sits in the middle and it's not I'm not a fence sitter but I'm always looking for nuance and subtlety and ways of making peace but actually that kind of broadly should we call it centrist approach Mm -hmm. also can mean that we don't really address matters of justice Mm -hmm. or the realities of situation and Jesus was not a centrist, I don't think. (laughs) I mean, and and there's a sense in which actually we we all need to take a bit more of that fire into our lives and our our ministry. And and but Franson exposes, I think, what happens when that fire meets some of the realities of of life. I agree with you, and I think he's really good on that. But I just want to read you one phrase that a reviewer um, who actually loved the book wrote, and I would be interested in your response to this. So this reviewer writes, the trouble is Franson never makes his characters' religious experiences as convincing as the rest of what he writes. In other words, the only real flaw in this almost eerily accomplished novel is a pretty forgivable one, that it doesn't quite capture God. And I just wonder whether you agree about that. I mean, I both agree and disagree. I mean, I'm not sure, I'm not sure one can capture God. I mean, I as I, I think that there's a particular moment, which again, I, I'm trying to be as spoiler-free as possible, but there is a particular moment when Becky, the Hildebrand's daughter, shall we say, has a religious mm-hmm. experience. And I went with it, Mm. but I wasn't entirely convinced by it. And I I wasn't entirely convinced that that Franson got to some of the inner realities of a powerful religious Mm. conversion. And I say that as someone who's experienced a very powerful religious conversion myself. I mean, I guess, you know, this is, this is, I I think, an abiding question for novels, uh, for novelists in an era where, I mean, I guess America is more religious than the UK, but in an era where being religious is not quite the default, certainly amongst poets and, and, um, and novelists, can they write that horizon mm. convincingly but i i i still think i mean nonetheless i don't if, if it is a flaw 
I don't think it's a disastrous one. No, I think I agree with you there. Um, now, I know one reason you particularly enjoyed the book was the was the time period, um, the early 1970s. And tell me a bit more, what was the what was the sort of what was the appeal um, for that and the particular outworking in this book? Why did that um, fire you up? Well, I think it's twofold. I mean, one is just very, very personal um, that um, I mean, I'm a, I, I'm a child of the 80s rather than the 70s, if you see what I mean. And there is a sense in which the late 60s and the early 70s had a sufficient distance for me growing up that it could cast a particular kind of glow for me. And I I guess uh, I was, as a teenager and into my early 20s, absolutely fascinated and indeed, I guess, deeply drawn to what I saw as the counterculture. As But I tended to have this very rose-tinted um, understanding of it. Um, there was a sense of it is at a safe distance and I can parcel it up as amazing music and everyone's into peace, love, and everyone's anti the Vietnam War, and there's a sort of sense of of you know hope in that. Mm-hmm. But the other side of it is that I guess as I've grown older, and I mean I've remained fascinated by that era, is coming to a a much richer understanding of the way in which the implications of the sixties and the early seventies have been really significant. I think for the kind of world we live in now and particularly that i mean we talk about the american century that you know that and and in some senses the 60s was the peak of the american century but it was also the point at which particular kinds of ways of going on were beginning to crumble as well and and discovering that that my fantasy about the peace love and hope era was actually pretty fantastical and and relied on I think quite a narrow understanding of America. And again, I remain fascinated by that era precisely because, I mean, and I think Franson does this brilliantly in Crossroads. He reveals how much the countercultural world that and the, the world of the hippie promise was this, it was a sort of white middle class movement mm-hmm. that covered up. The fantasies held within that, and you know, we see this exposed particularly in in Perry's journey in the novel about how his use of drugs becomes ever darker. And I think that's a metaphor in some ways for a particular kind of hippie journey. But also, um, there's this whole other America, the Native American uh, world or the uh, African American world, which gets concealed beneath this veneer of the the promise of the 60s mm-hmm. and then also the implosion of the 70s the paranoia the um the lack of trust which is ushered in by watergate mm-hmm. um and and actually the i mean i, th- I think the manson murders of the, le- the late of late 1969 as well are really significant in that those people who were seen as trustworthy because they were hippies you know they looked a particular way well suddenly those people, people who looked that way were committing the most dreadful mm-hmm. murders as well. So I just think it's just a, an absolutely fascinating pivot 
point. It's a crossroads yeah. in American culture, but I also think it's kind of crossroads in terms of that American century, which we've all been living in the shadow of. Yeah. And and Jonathan Franzen does this thing so well of, of creating something that where you can see the appeal of, of it and the, and the kind of, you know, all the sort of high aspirations and you can see the collapse as well. I think he does that brilliantly, the sort of chaos of the whole thing. Uh, it is a sort of chaotic but extraordinary brilliant book just want to ask you one thing about style another of the views I read um, a reviewer writes that Jonathan Franzen writes marvellous novels and indifferent sentences and he concludes that Franzen is a major writer with a minor style he actually says it doesn't matter he says who cares that the hard shoulder is littered with maimed syntax broken rhythms and multi-car pileups of cliché. Your eyes are fixed on the vividly unspooling road ahead. So in other way, it, he says, you know, this, the style is terrible, but the book is great. Any any thoughts on that? I mean, gosh, I, I mean, I think that, I mean, rather like uh, another uh, novelist, I have long been fascinated by Donna Tart. I, I think that there are questions around around style. I'm not sure he's a great English stylist, as it were, a stylist of American English, but I really don't care. I mean, I genuinely don't care because what Franson is capable of doing, as, as is someone like Donna Tartt, actually, is to take a story which arguably is, it's not genre writing. This is not all about plot. It's not about A to B to C to D. It's not about that sort of drive through a line that you find in great thriller writing. But nonetheless, it has the compulsion of the thriller. Mm -hmm. And the, the compulsion is to follow this line of, of, of what I can only describe as a kind of psychological acuity. Mm -hmm. uh, th this desire that he embeds in his writing, simply to know what happens yeah. to his characters. And in one sense, I mean, genuinely, I mean, I think if you unpick this novel and put it in terms of plot, I mean, yes, lots of things go on, but it's actually not so much about plot. It's about a bunch of very recognisable human beings, perhaps slightly amped up, but mm -hmm. very recognisable human beings who are finding themselves in recognizable human situations and we simply have to go with it yeah, but yeah. gosh i mean i it's i do not did, did not spend any time reading uh, jonathan franson or someone like donna tart marveling at the style and the elegance of the prose. I'm, I'm in, kind of indifferent to that, but yeah. I think he's still a great writer. No, I, I couldn't agree more. And I just wanted to keep going. I, and and there's something sort of slightly hectic about it. And you end up almost breathless reading. You're sort of, you know, running out of breath because you're just keeping going. It's like kind of running to keep up. Um, but but it's for me, it's completely compelling. And another reviewer says, Crossroads tells us that life is hard and families are impossible. Um, so there are these themes of family dysfunction and sin and forgiveness. I wonder, um, were you left were you left hopeful overall? That's a very good question. I mean, hopeful, uh, expectant. I can only anticipate further depredations, shall we say? Yeah. Uh, I. The, the one character about whom we hear very little 
is Judson, the youngest family member. Mm -hmm. And he's presented, if I remember rightly, towards the end of the novel as a kind of promise for the future. And I, I, so I, I, but at the same time, I'm full of doubt on the possibility of that. Yeah. If we're talking about hope, then my hope lies not in some sort of fantastical resolution of the family, but a kind of a, a reappraisal on the part of all the characters around what the possibilities of a family are and and, and the extent to which actually grace can be found, but it is always a kind of provisional grace that the kind of hardening of positions that we find, particularly with certain characters Mm, 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 at the mm. end of the novel might find a kind of flexibility within them, but I'm not holding my breath for that. No, but I, I, yeah. yeah, we can't say too much either, can we? Because it would it would spoil it for people who haven't had the pleasure of reading this yet. I think probably we should leave it there. There's a lot more we could say, but we've been discussing Crossroads by Jonathan Franson and you can read Rachel's introductory essay and that also offers some questions for discussion in the Church Times and online. And finally, Rachel, I always ask people in this podcast, could you recommend something else you've read recently that you think our readers might enjoy? Yes, so I want to recommend a poetry collection, Another Way to Split Water by Alicia Per Mohammed. I was startled by this collection. Uh, Alicia is uh, a Canadian of Muslim heritage who's negotiating the complexities, I guess, of inhabiting multiple identities and uses the the metaphor of water as an abiding way of understanding the the way in which identity can seem terribly solid and real and yet has this flow and capacity to evaporate. I think what I found particularly striking about the collection is that Alicia is unafraid to center her Muslim faith but in such a way that I mean it found it felt very fresh for me I felt like she was channeling what I can only describe as a kind of Sufi mysticism the kind of Muslim faith which absolutely touches and intersects with the medieval mysticism that we find in the Christian tradition, whether that be Mother Julian of Norwich or uh, Marjorie Kemp. And her her writing has the rawness of Marjorie Kemp, mm-hmm. but the, the metaphysical richness of Mother Julian, it's not always an easy read because Alicia dares to center her own body in the midst of of this collection and as such i think any reader needs to be aware of just the fact of being uh, you know what it means to read a collection written by a young canadian muslim woman who will have faced all sorts of mm-hmm. challenges and attacks on her identity but it most of all it is exquisite and beautiful and invites us into often a a bleak but beautiful Canadian landscape out beyond cities that is 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 moving and and extraordinary.
Thank you, Rachel. And thank you very much for the conversation. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Church Times podcast. You can find more news, analysis, comment and book reviews on our website, churchtimes.co.uk. If you are not yet a subscriber to the Church Times, you can try your first 10 issues for just £10. You'll get the paper delivered to your door every Friday, plus full access to our website and digital archive. Go to churchtimes.co.uk forward slash subscribe to find out more.